yo, yo, what up, podcast family? And shout out to all my soon-to-be subscribers. Welcome to Everybody Somebody. I'm your host, Jason Snow, and thank you for tuning in. Wherever it is you get your podcast, make sure you like this, subscribe to this, show me some love. Now let's hop into this next episode. What's up, good people? Welcome back to Everybody Somebody. Again, I'm your host, Jason Snow, and today with me, I have Mr. Kevin Hoffman. Hi, how you doing? Hey, man, I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Good, real good. Hey, so um, I think uh, I told my guests, I think my last episode or the episode before that, I've been um, just been searching for people to just to, you know, connect with and talk with and just bring to my platform. And I found you and I just thought that your story was so interesting and something that I, you know, hold dear to my heart because just the environment and, and, and everything in the society that we're living in right now. I think a lot of conversations need to be had that are not being had. And especially from someone whose background is like yours, which I'll let you expand on and just kind of give people um, a, a view into your life. But um, I just wanted to first just say thank you for hopping on with me, man. Um, and I'm definitely looking forward to us having a, a nice conversation today. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. So I'll give you a a little background. So I was born in Detroit in the summer of 1967, two weeks after the 67 riots. Um, I am the product of an affair between a white woman and black man. Uh, and for obvious reasons, my they so they had an affair. They worked together. Mm-hmm. Um, and for obvious reasons, my my white mother's white husband didn't want to raise somebody else else's child. So I was put up for adoption immediately. And then I was adopted at three months old uh, by a white minister, his wife, and I, and they have three biological children. Um, and so I was kind of born this biracial kid into a city that was literally on fire because, you know, basically police brutality the black Man. community had stood up and said we've had enough which we do pretty much every 20 or 30 years without much change and uh yeah that's what started the detroit riots and pretty much almost every riot in the in this country since then man that's 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 crazy man um very interesting story um so yeah so let me let me let me touch back on just being given up for adoption um your your biological mother um had to make a choice the choice was made um was there any doubt into that or it was kind of like set in stone like hey this is what it has to be and this is what it's going to be yeah i think well she knew her husband and i think she understood a black child growing up in this house is not going to fare well. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I would have just been a constant reminder to him of the, you know, that she was unfaithful. Uh, so I don't think that was an option. And then you got to understand too, this was back in the you know, late sixties. Oh yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I give her a whole lot of credit because I mean, he could have responded in a number of different ways and the police probably never would have been called. Um, and so, yeah, I, a lot of what I do today is because of the sacrifice that my mother made. I mean, I know I, I connected with an aunt, my mother's sister. Mm-hmm. She had shared with me that her, that my mother had come to her sister and I asked for a loan to get an abortion. And my, my aunt gave it to her. Wow. So my mother left this house in Plymouth, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit, to travel to Flint, Michigan to have me aborted, which is only it's an hour away. Wow. I don't know what happened during that, you know, hour drive, but my mother changed her mind and chose to go home and tell her white husband that she not only did she have an affair with a black man, but she was pregnant. And like I said, he could have responded in a number of different ways, some of them violent, and I don't, people wouldn't even have batted an eye back then. Yeah. 
man. So on to my second question, which I know you probably know is coming. I'm pretty sure once people listen to this, they want to know. I mean, you were adopted. Do you have any relationship or had have you ever met your biological mother and father? No. So when I I started the search when I was in college. Um and then because it was so frustrating back then there was no internet, so I was searching and I would have to write letters and wait for the adoption agency to respond and it was it was just crazy. Um I would start searching for a while then get so frustrated and stop and i did that for 20 years and then when i was yeah in my 40s i uh a friend of mine and a a friend that's also adopted had suggested that i contact this woman who's she's an adoption angel and what she does is she connects adoptees with biological parents and she's a professional at it so she knows what she's doing um and so I gave her all the information that I had had for the last 20 years. But it was interesting because this was the first time that we used the Internet to search. And so I remember going out to a football game with my sons, a high school football game. And I sent her all my information. And then sitting in those stands at the high school football game, probably 20 minutes later, she had found my mother. Um, and unfortunately, my mother died six years before that. Wow. Um, so that night, yeah, sitting in those uh, high school football stands, I got my mother's obituary, a picture of her headstone, the names of my brothers and sisters, sister. Um, and so, yeah, it was six years too late to meet my mother. Interestingly, uh, I found out just a couple of years ago that my biological father died within two weeks of my biological mother and they never had as far as i know my biological father didn't even know you know his girlfriend or whoever he whatever he called her didn't even know she was pregnant man He, he had left detroit either around that time or soon after she found out she was pregnant i don't i don't think she ever told her but yeah, so they died within two weeks of each other, which is kind of crazy. So Man. I never got to meet him, but I did meet a nephew. Yeah, that's pretty much all I've met on his side is a nephew. Man, that is that's crazy. Yeah, so I, yeah, yeah, and that's it's it was it was interesting to search because I searched for both sides. So I have a white side and a black side, and man, that. That was very enlightening to see that it's a whole lot easier to search if you're white. Like I went through Ancestry.com. And so every time, you know, there's a link to someone in your on your tree, you get a message. Yeah. I swear I get messages every day from my mother's side, the white side. We went back as far as how they came to this country. You can do that with my mother's side. With my father's side, I traced it to his parents. So two generations. And that says a lot about how we keep records in this country, black versus white. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, it's crazy that you just mentioned that about ancestry because I'm actually getting ready to go to uh, my my mother's side's family reunion. We have what we call a relatively... Uh, family reunion and it's just pretty much everyone we're related to and it's a it's a woman her name is uh, Mimi but she is like in charge of just going through like ancestry and I'm pretty sure she uses yeah. another other platforms just to find everyone mm-hmm. and how we're related and it's amazing to look at man I, I would suggest anyone that never has even thought about it or given any thought to just go check it out and just see you yeah. never know man you could be you have maybe have ran across someone you were related to or be living next to him. You don't even know it. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Man, I, I would imagine just being adopted and I'll say, uh, I, 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 I'll give my three stages. I think that someone that was adopted may feel, um, I think like one, one of them would be resentment. Uh, one would be like forgiveness. Then the third one would be like the keeping, keeping it moving stage. Have, I'm in, um, of course you can, 
elaborate on if you have more stages, if you've been through it, just just those three of just I know you probably went through all those phases or all those stages when just finding out more information or just not really like did you get closure? Like what all did you go through finding all this out? Yeah. So when I guess the fortunate thing for me was I had 20 years to kind of try and wrap my head around the different possibilities that were out there. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I, so I had figured there's a good chance she's probably not going to be alive. So you got to prepare yourself for that. So I did. Um, and this is going to sound crazy, but I remember sitting on those stands when I found out that news the most, the strongest feeling I had was relief. And that sounds horrible to say, but I, it was relief because I don't know emotionally, man, to meet her would have been a lot. Um, and so, yeah, that relief was, well, now I don't have to go through that. And I, and I, and I'd done a good enough job, I think of preparing myself that actually thinking she's probably dead most of the time. Um, because if she was alive, then that was a good thing. But if I did it the other way, I just didn't want to be so disappointed. Um, so yeah, there were, yeah, there were these thoughts of regret because you just think, man, if she'd have just said any, like if she'd have just tried to come looking for me. Yeah. So you do have that regret. I don't know if that ever turned into resentment. It was interesting when everyone, I often get asked, you know, well, what did you want out of the search? And it was always three things from ever since I can remember, I wanted just to know her, the story. All I was got growing up was he's adopted. And then people would, cause yeah, especially when you're adopted into a family whose skin color doesn't match yours. Yeah. Those questions come up all the time. And so imagine. And the only response that we gave as a family was his mother gave him up because she couldn't she couldn't take care of him or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that never made any sense to me because, you know, just like a generic term kids whose parents couldn't take care of them, but they didn't give them away. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was a struggle for everybody. So that didn't make a lot of sense to me. so I wanted to know the real story. What happened? And when I found out the real story, man, I was just blown away with just, you know, I was almost aborted. It, it, there was this affair. I mean, just it was a very interesting story, actually. Man. Um, and it was my story. So that's important for adoptees, too, is so much is taken away from us so that what others take for granted and basically what what people who grow up with biological family take for granted, we really treasure. And so there were any anything I could get about my mother was just huge to me. So although I didn't get to meet her, you know, I found out through other relatives that, you know, she was very creative, which I am. So that was kind of interesting. Um, so, yeah, so I wanted to know why, what happened, the true story, not, you know, just a made up story. Um, and that was, like I said, far more interesting than I ever thought it would be. Um, and I wanted, this was important to me, that I wanted her to see that I was okay. And then I turned out all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the last thing was I, I wanted her to know, you know, no harm, no foul. Like I didn't, I never really was mad at her. And when I found out the true story, it just like, and I won't say this about all adoptees because I think. There's a lot broken in the system. And part of that is we take kids away from families a a lot sooner than we should. But for my case, the fact that I'm this, you know, child of color that would have gone home to be raised by my biological mother and her husband, I would not have done well in that household. Yeah. Um, My mother had a child before she got married. And her the hus her husband agreed to raise that child as if it was his as if he was his own. And the stories I heard about the way he treated that child, and that child was white. Like that brother that I have, he's my oldest brother, became an alcoholic and a drug addict. 
and it's pretty much because of the abuse he got from his stepfather. That I would have gotten 10 times oh, yeah. in that household. Oh, yeah. So the decision to put me up for adoption truly was in, in my best interest. And I wanted her to know that. Like, I, I wasn't mad about being adopted. I just wanted to know what happened. Yeah, dang. Man, this is, I'm just amazed, man. I, I love hearing stories like this. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that things, you know, that, I mean, all in all, I mean, you know, the affair happened and then race kind of played a, a, a huge factor into the decisions made to you being adopted. But it's just amazing, man. Um, just how, how some people, you know, are, are brought into this, to this life. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's the one thing that, you know, as I'm getting older, I really start to understand is the legacy that she created through me. Man, that's just been inspiring where literally, I mean, she risked her life to go back to her home and tell her husband she had an affair with a black man. Hey. And so hey, now 1967, tried, right? Yeah, 67. Man. So, I mean, a lot long before that interracial, I mean, at that time, interracial relationships were outlawed. Oh, yeah. No, no. Yeah. So <laughs> the courage that she had to do that. Yeah. And, and I'm, pre I'm pretty sure. Me to, to do more. And so that's why I've kind of dedicated my life to working with organizations and schools in the area of diversity and belonging. Oh, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll definitely get on that. So how, how was it um, growing up in a, in a, in a white high so, uh, household? You said uh, your father was a, 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 a minister, a preacher? Yeah. Yeah. He was a minister. So it was interesting. Like, so at that, when I came home at three months old, they lived in Dearborn, a suburb of Detroit. Mm -hmm. um, when I was a year old, we woke up to a cross burning in our front yard. Simply because they had brought this child of color into this community. Um, yeah, and then soon after that, the church where my father my father was an associate pastor at that church, uh, they tried to fire my father because he brought me into their congregation. And so after dealing with a community that's burning crosses in our yard and a church that's trying to fire, fire my father any chance they get, um, we moved when I was three years old to Detroit. Uh, my father became a head pastor of a church on the northwest side of Detroit, um, gracious savior. And the where we lived, the parsonage or the home that the church owned, where the pastor lived, was in a black neighborhood. So from age three to eight, I was always around kids that looked like me. And that was life changing. Because um, my mom and dad didn't know black culture good enough to teach it to me. They didn't know how to prepare me for this country that puts a lot of weight on race. And I was so fortunate that I grew up around kids and families that I could learn that from. Um, so it was interesting to grow up in a white family where yeah, everywhere you go, you stick out as a family. You know, they're always look, they would always be looking at us, wonder where did this black kid come from? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but that became normal to me. So that was my normal. Um, and actually, I notice it more today than I did growing up. Um, yeah, my, we have a very international family. My brothers married Asian women. My sister married and divorced two black guys. Uh, so yeah, now when we all get together, yeah, everyone's trying to figure out how we. <laughs> Man, I can imagine. So yeah, my, like, uh, and I, uh, I emailed you about my, my wife. She's, she's biracial. Um, mother's white, father's black. All her brothers and sisters biracial as well. Um, so our daughter is, I guess she'll be, she'll look more like my, my wife's complexion, um, which is more of the fair, fair skin. But, uh, I, I've, I've had talks with her of just how, you know, even in the workplace, even now, like one day she'll wear her hair curly to work and uh -huh. certain white people will be like, how do you get your hair like that? Like yeah. you thought you were black. Yeah. It's like, they don't really see her as being you know, half white. It's just like, right. right. You're black. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that was that was important for me to understand growing up. Um but that's interesting too. Like I didn't even know I was didn't confirm that I was biracial until I was in my 20s. Um, so I always identified as black, but I also understood too that I wasn't going to pass as a white kid. Yeah. So I understood socially for my own social survival, I'm going to have to, you know, ride or die with this one group. Um, and I was really fortunate that I was put, you know, in touch into that black community. And then the schools we went to, because Detroit was changing so fast in the late sixties, early seventies and eighties. After the riots happened, the white people just said, we're leaving. And they left, I mean, in busloads. So Detroit became very black very quickly. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, <laughs> that was a challenge for the city, which was, yeah, I was so fortunate to just grow up in this city that was just this predominantly black city. Um, and just learned so much from, you know, what my mom and dad couldn't teach me. Yeah. So, so how do you, and I know this is, I mean, kind of a broad question and it could, we can go on and on about the answers or opinions of it is just, you know, just race, our race relations we have going on right now and just racism, like in our country, is it, does, do you ever find yourself like having to choose a side or not so much choose a side, but kind of view, have viewpoints from both sides or is just kind of like, man, like, why are we still having this issue? Yeah. I don't feel the need to choose. Well, I guess that was my point with the last question was I knew early on I had to choose a side. Yeah. Because the other side wasn't going to accept me. Yeah. So, yeah, people, I get that question asked a lot. They'll ask me, why do you, why do you identify black and not white? And my smart answer is I didn't know I had a choice. Like when I present <laughs> a person of color, we can debate what what i am you know people will in everywhere i go people think i'm part of them so if mm -hmm. i go to mexico they are convinced i'm mexican you know <laughs> if, if i'm in an arabic community they convinced i'm part of them um, <laughs> so we can debate that but no one's ever thought i was white yeah and so so yeah early on i knew i had to pick a side and i knew that I would be treated differently simply because my skin was different. Yeah. So today I don't, I can see some things kind of from a white viewpoint. I can see the effects of like living in a white household and, you know, benefiting from my, my family's white privilege. Mm -hmm. um, we lived in that black neighborhood for about five years and then my dad got a promotion. He became the assistant to the Bishop of Southeast Michigan. And we moved from the black neighborhood, still in Detroit, two miles away, but now to an all white neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, I was the Jackie Robinson of the, the street we were on. <laughs> and those kids had no idea how to handle being around, you know, this black kid. Um, but so that was tough to kind of, learn that way like that was the first time at eight years old yeah i was treated outside of my house i was treated like a minority where you know yeah those kids they weren't used to talking around a person of color so they would say these horribly offensive things and then yeah. i had some friends that took joy in watching me squirm when they would say something racially insensitive yeah. um yeah so yeah, I knew that new community wasn't going to accept me as a white kid. And so that was always the struggle is I got to connect to the black community. And that was my biggest fear growing up. One of my biggest fears growing up was that, you know, my black friends would be like, he's a fraud. He's not really black. Yeah. Um, and every now and then I got that. And they would always say it the same way. You talk proper. Yeah, <laughs> that's the cold word. Yeah, that's the cold word for you to talk white. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what do you expect? I grew up. You know, people taught me to talk or white. <laughs> Man, it's it's funny that you said, you know, you can go to these different, you know, um, places, Mexico, and they just assume you're you're one of them. Um, 
and it, and it's and it's like black people, like black people. I don't know what it is about black people, but they have a radar. They just have a. They just know. Like if they see a person that's biracial, they can spot it out immediately. Like yeah, exactly. oh, he, yeah. he's half white, or right. he's or you know right. she's half white. Yeah, yeah. But white people are like, no, they're black. Yeah. And I don't understand that. It's just like, yeah. I mean, I know black people. We come in all different colors. Um, my my mother's very very light skin. My father's kind of, I would say brownish skin. Um, but my great, I mean, my, my grandmother was, I mean, her, my great grandfather, he was almost white. So we are, we're just so mixed up with different yeah. colors, man. And yeah. it's, 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 it's actually, I mean, it's beautiful to see. I like all different colors is great. I think moving forward within our country and in the world, I think that's how it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's, gonna, it's just going to be like that. That's so interesting you say that because me and my wife will say that all the time. You just see, you know, athlete on TV or whatever. You'll be like, huh, she got something in her. Oh, yeah, something in her. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah it, oftentimes it's those people that I would say, yeah, in white communities could pass for white. Mm-hmm. When you, but you're right. You got that eye where you're like, yeah, nah. She, you know. <laughs> so, so, Kev, you're an author. Um you know, my people that's listening, they don't know you have a book, but I, I, I've, I've, I've looked up uh, your website and your book is called Growing Up Black and White. Right. Um, I know you do some some speaking in universities and colleges and high schools and just kind of just being a philanthropist. Um, kind of just tell us more about what growing up black and white is and just kind of your everyday life and works that you do. Yes. Yeah, so probably 10, 12 years ago. I decided to write this book. And back then I was just thinking, you know, I had this amazing English teacher coming up and she'd encouraged me that I was a good writer. And so I always thought maybe I'll write a book someday. And I thought, yeah, not everyone has grown up like this to be in a black city, living with a white family. And, and I wanted to kind of share that experience. Um, and really when I first got into it, I thought that's what I was, that's what I wanted. Um, but then after sitting with it for a while, it, it, and it's great to be able to write a book and then go out and speak because people ask you questions and then those questions really get you to start thinking deeply about stuff. Mm-hmm. So that question would come up all the time is, well, why did you write the book? And you, in the, initially I would say, I wanted to help families like ours, white families raising, you know, black kids. Yeah. Um. But after I really sat with that for a while and and figured out that one of the big pushes in writing when I started to write the book was I wanted to share as a person of color my experience in this country and how I interpreted race. And I thought that could be powerful, but I had to do it in a way so that when white people read it, they didn't they didn't want to put it down like they wanted to read it and not be afraid to read it. Yeah. And so I put a lot of thought and effort into that. And what came with the book was me just telling these stories. You know, I'm the son of a preacher. I get the storytelling from my father. And uh, and it was just me telling these stories of what it was like growing up and then reflecting back on those stories from a black man's point of view in this country. Mm-hmm. And then saying, this is what happened and this is how I interpreted what happened now as a black man. And so I talk a lot about race, but it's not like in your face. So yeah. I'll tell a great story, or, you know, that's funny. But then I spin it and say, this is how I see that today. Yeah. Um, and that has resonated with a lot of people. Um, yeah, it's I it's. They've been able to read the book and then have conversations about race in ways I don't think they could have otherwise. And this is just, and this is, I'm sure it's just to, to everyone, not a specific uh, race or, or gender, just to everyone. Yeah. So it was, I mean, it's, yeah, it's written from my point of view as a black, you know, male in this country. Uh, and it was just, yeah, one is, you know, and like I told you, 
it's really become important to me lately is to live out this legacy of my mother. So yeah. all that she sacrificed, it's just really important for me to do this work where we try to find a way to reconcile the two races I'm made up of. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's led me to go into schools, you know, K through 12 and universities and start opening up these, these conversations about race. And, you know, really it's when I go into those organizations, I just say, you know, I, whoever I'm meeting with, I'll say, here's our biggest challenge. Our biggest challenge is to create an environment where the student or the employee who wears the Black Lives Matter t-shirt and the the student or the employee that wears the Make America Great Again hat can coexist. Yeah. Because those things are so extreme. And so, you know, one of the biggest lessons I teach when I go into these organizations is why are you why are you having these conversations with strangers? Like there's no I'm not having a conversation with a guy wearing a Make America Great Again hat on if I don't know him. Yeah. Cuz we don't have enough invested in each other to care. Yeah. Whether we hurt this person or, or we just don't care. That's why social media is just such a hot mess. Because oh, yeah. strangers who know they'll never see you again can just come at you strong but they'd mm-hmm. never do that in person nope um and so that's what i work with these organizations to do is to just understand y'all don't have to believe the same you just have to respect each other's space and so one of the big keynote addresses i do is called give me three feet which just says you can be whoever you want to be within your own three feet you can love who you want to love worship who you want to worship vote for who you want to vote for and you can do that all within your three feet, but and your three feet doesn't have to come in contact with mine. Yeah. So if you want to vote for Trump and I want to vote for Biden, that's cool. I don't need you to come into my circle and tell me why I shouldn't vote for the guy I want to vote for. So give me three feet. Back off me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> simple as that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, and that's and it's funny. It's a. I don't know if this is a national term, but we used it all the time growing up in Detroit playing backyard basketball. That was that was the rule. And anytime you tried to get the ball in, you had to give the guy three feet. Oh, yeah. Or they had every right to just throw the ball at you. <laughs> and so that, that's kind of the story I lead into when I do the keynote address about give me three feet is, you know, understand. And it's actually an, it's a great story for white people to understand that that black there's there comes a point when black people will have enough and so you get shocked when we take the ball and we throw it at you yeah but we've warned you over and over and over and over and over again don't do certain things so oh yeah we'll be really (laughs) shocked when uh there was a comedian that used to say you know call me an n-word enough one's gonna show up oh yeah. yeah so so yeah i try to get that point across to, you know, organizations is, you know, most of the time when people of color react in a certain way, it ain't the first time that's happened to them. Oh no. And yeah, so people, how about we create an environment where we, those things don't happen. Yeah. I, I just, I mean, from everything that has like has went on, um, just over, you know, our lifetimes and our parents' lifetimes and grandparents' lifetimes, people of color, I would say I've been the most like gracious people yeah. to walk this earth. Yes. To, to, to go through yeah. a lot of the stuff they go through. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Um, just yeah. like, and I told you this through, um, when I sent my, my invite to you is like my, so my parents, um, my mother's from Ohio, but her parents, my grandparents, they're from Mississippi. So mm. Mississippi, same time. My mother was born in 69. So yeah. her parents were in Mississippi during I could imagine the the wow. worst time to be in yeah, Mississippi. Exactly. <laughs> um, and just hearing stories of what they had to go through as children, you know, just going to school or just going to the store, just all, all this, this craziness. And it's like, it was no, it was, I mean, and I know they probably couldn't, but it was no fight back. It was always like, just take it and just keep living, keep going. And it's just like, what other, nation does that because if you watch like if you watch you know just i mean i know sometimes i mean a lot of a lot of stuff that's reported on the news you can't believe everything but 
a lot of these other countries, like when when their people are mad about something or mistreatment or government or other people, they like go to war immediately. Right. Yeah. It's like it's no question. Like they'll die for a lot of that stuff. Yeah. It's just like we were very peaceful about how we were being treated. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it just blows my mind. I just I, I don't understand it and I get it. I wasn't living in those shoes and everyone says, I, well, I would have done this, but no. if you weren't walking <laughs> in those shoes, you don't know what you would have done. Yeah. <laughs> and the amount of strength and control oh, man. to do that, to not do anything. Man. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. That's more strength than doing. So. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It is. It, 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 that takes a, a great person, man. And, and I feel that way. And I know we, we talk about a lot of race relations and, you know, you know we had the whole Black Lives Matter. Um, we had to stop Asian hate. But I think another thing that that gets forgot about, and I feel bad for this this set of people, is the Hispanics, preferably. I mean, specifically the Mexicans, man. Right. Like the way these people are treated in the United States is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these people's got, they got their kids like locked in cages. Yeah. It's just crazy to me. Yeah. People don't say anything about it. Like, you know, it was some people raised a little bit of fuss about it when it happened, but. You know, we still talk about Black Lives Matter. We still talk about, you know, stop mm-hmm. Asian hate. We talk about mental health. But we yeah. don't talk about what happened to these people, man. Yeah, that's true. And just race relations goes, it goes afar, man. Not just black and white, even like the Hispanics. The, the, I know they say black and brown people, but just everywhere, man. It's just, it's unfortunate, man. And I don't, I don't understand it. Probably never will, but I just pray when, once my daughter, she gets old enough, she doesn't really have to experience it. I, I know I didn't. I can't compare myself to what you went through or what our grandparents went through, but it's what I'm living through right now. It's, it's mild compared to everyone else, but I just hope it, it gets better, man, because yeah. it's just now, too I much. I would say, people don't like to hear this, but there was more, we call it political correctness now, but when I was coming up, especially like in the eighties is when it was big, people had enough sense just not to say certain things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <Yep. laughs> like that just wasn't acceptable. So you couldn't be out in public shouting some of the things that the Trump supporters have shouted over the last, whatever, five, six years. Yeah. Like that just, you, you were just ostracized if you did that. Yep. Now you've got a big old group that was oh, saying those horrible things. So that to me has been far worse than when I was growing up. And I, and I say this all the time is, you know, my kids were called nigger more than I ever was. Um, I, it had a lot, it had some, some to do with, you know, I grew up in Detroit, so I was around black people most yeah. of the time, but, uh, and then, yeah, my kids, we, it's a more diverse neighborhood. So yeah, they're going to be called that, but still, I mean, we've, yeah, it, it's taken a step back because people, yeah, there's no other way to say it. Trump has emboldened people to say oh, yeah. some things that just were intolerable when I was coming up. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely unfortunate, man. I always talk about, like, when, I, when I'm around and just going places and people ask me where I'm from um, or if I'm at work and we're having conversations about race um, and, like, I'm like, yeah, I'm from Ohio. And they was like, Ohio, really? I was like, well, how's Ohio? I was like, um, I was like, we got a lot of racism in Ohio. I, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what people think Ohio's like, but yeah. it's very racist in Ohio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I, we definitely have some uh, fair share of stories. I can remember like uh, playing basketball. And I want to say we were in, I don't know, have you ever heard of Zanesville? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, man, we were like playing down there and like the kids had like KKK masks on and like yeah. in the crowds. Yeah. I was yeah. like, what the hell? Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, the principal like kicked them out, but still it's like even the thought process of doing that at that is, at this time, this was the uh, early 2000s. It was like, come on, man. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know, man. It's, it is what it is. You just got to keep living um, and keep moving on. Uh, I think. How how has the how has the reception been like when you go out and speak to like these universities or these businesses like how do people receive it like or, or if you're at schools like do you do like elementary or middle school like like our parents obviously parents have to have, probably have some approval for their kids to be in, engaged in it or whatever but how is the reception to it? Uh, 
it's as to be expected because majority of times I'm going into predominantly white environments, mm-hmm. um, which means the majority of the people that are there don't think there's a need for what I do. Um, and I mm-hmm. think they think it ain't broke. Why are you here <laughs> to fix it? Um, and, so, and so I know that going in and I know, you know, whenever I go into a new organization or school, you got to hit them hard right away and really quite honestly to get them to like you so that you can, so they'll hear you. And so I go in very purposeful telling in great detail the story of my mother and the abortion. And that seems to kind of give me a door in. And I, and I found out that if you can get them to just kind of want to hear what you have to say, yeah. <laughs> you go a lot further. And so, um, yeah, I was just in a district and I was speaking in front of a whole school district. It was all teachers, administration, bus drivers. And um, I had, you know, everyone comes in nervous because they don't know what I'm going to do or say. Uh, and then afterwards, the superintendent came up to me and he said, you're uh, you're not. He said something like you're not intimidating. He said the response I'm getting is you're very approachable or you're not intimidating. <laughs> I thought that's what I have to be like. Yeah. And I also know that if I was a six foot five dark skinned black dude, it would be even harder. Oh, yeah. Because I'm only five, four. I'm light skinned. It just plays better. I understand that. Um, but I use that to my advantage, too. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. You have to <laughs> yeah, you go in, tell a lot of a lot of jokes, a lot of stories that are funny. But then you also, I mean, yeah, I was just in a meeting the other day um, and I done a presentation. It went well um, and had gotten out, not, you know, I'd said what I wanted to say, drove home points I wanted to drive home, but did it in a nice way. Um, and then, you know, I, w- I was leaving. I gave the mic back to the superintendent and uh, the audience is full of teachers and staff. And this one woman just raised her hand after I was done and said, well, I don't understand why, you know, we can't just say all lives matter, you know, cause, and, and I, it took about five seconds. I stood there, not even that long, but I paused for a moment, whether I was going to respond to that or not. And then of course I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a little base and <laughs> <laughs> what I had to say, cause I wanted to drive home the point that that's just so offensive <laughs> with you. Yeah. When you say all lives matter, I mean, yeah. And so I told her why, and we don't do that any other place. You know, if we celebrate one disease or trying to get rid of one disease, you know, like I gave the example of, you know, in the NFL every October, you know, there's a big campaign against uh, breast cancer. Yeah. Um, But you, you don't, in October, you know, while watching the NFL, you don't have the Alzheimer's people, you know, complaining because we're giving all this attention to the breast cancer people like that's ridiculous but that's exactly what you do when we say black lives matter but what about us Um, and then i explained to someone after then a bunch and i was shocked that i kind of went at this woman kind of hard and uh the (laughs) the the rest of the audience started clapping which i thought was interesting Um, and then several teachers came up to me afterwards and just said we needed to hear that and I said, yeah, I mean, just imagine you have two kids. One kid is crying. He's upset. And you're trying to tend to that kid. And the other kid comes over. And he's like, well, what about me? What about me? You obviously give your attention to the one who's in crisis. We as a black community are in crisis. And we need yeah. attention. That's, it's, it, there's no other way to say it. Oh, yeah. That. Yeah. I think it's kind of like um, like right now about how, you know, it's, it's a lot of pushback about like race theory being taught in, in yeah. schools. Yeah. They, they don't want it, man. Um, yeah. It's, I didn't, I know for sure, like in school and I'm not, I, I won't, I'll admit I didn't pay attention that much in school about history and all that other stuff. But I know for a fact that we didn't really learn anything, but the, the typical, you know, Martin Luther King was a good guy. That's pretty much it. Um, yeah. We didn't yeah. learn about what it's, really it, happened. Yeah, we weren't. We were all cheated as yep. far as history. 
And and that's kind of one of the messages I present to schools is we're all missing out on so much. Yep. Not just black people, not just people of color. We all are missing out on it. Um, because, you know, and the example I give when I speak is, so I wrote a book. Of course, I'm the hero of the book because I wrote it. That's how we've handled history of this country. Oh, yeah. <laughs> White men have been allowed to write the book, so they become the heroes. But what we need to do, and, and it's interesting, I will not say when I go out, I will not say the words critical race theory. Because I understand that, one, most people don't even know what the hell that is. Yep. But they attach something to it. So when I get asked that question, do you believe in that? All I say is, I'm just asking you to present accurate history and let us figure that out after that. This generation today actually laughs at us because we believe the Columbus story for so long. They know that is so inaccurate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if you're trying to raise students or employees that you want to go out and be successful in this world, you need to just tell them the truth because they're going to be competing with people that are going to get a broader sense of what this history was in this country. And exactly. you don't want them going out ignorant. So teach them the right. Just teach them facts. That's all I'm asking. That's it. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, Trump pushed the whole fake news thing, but nobody wants to actually hear the facts. Yeah, exactly. Just, yeah. And, and not only facts, but teach it from other points of view. Mm-hmm. So you should, if you're talking about, you know, Columbus coming over here, you should have an indigenous person's point of view. I mean, that we got to have more voices in the room. Yep. Not just, you know, old white guys. It sounds hard <laughs> to say, but yeah, Simple we need that. The LBGT community needs to have more of a voice. People of color need to have more of a voice. Women need to have more of a voice. Yeah, but I mean, that's, that's the only way we can really move forward with without leaving people out. Um, it's just, it just makes sense, man. Uh, uh, I'm not a pessimistic person. I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic about a lot of things, but one thing that I am kind of still on the fence about is race. And me and my wife talk about this all the time. It just, I just, I don't know, man. I just don't, it just still seems so far away Yeah. because people are just, I, I don't know. I, I can't, I don't know if they won't change or just ignorant or just don't want to acknowledge it. I don't know what it is, but it, to me, it's just, I don't know, man. It, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, I think I will say this. I've been more encouraged in the last year than I ever have in my life. Yeah. Because when the whole George Floyd thing went down, everybody was sitting at home with not much to do. And so, man, a hundred times more people saw oh, yeah. that video than would have seen it normally. Oh, yeah. And I think that video will change things. It's the same way, like, a big push for the civil rights movement back in the 60s was TV. Yeah. It was the first time that the white people who were saying, no, y'all, you guys are just blowing this out of proportion. It's not that bad. When they would turn on their new, their TVs every night to watch the news and see fire hoses pointed at us yep. <laughs> and dogs sicked on us, that gained the momentum because then white people got involved in the civil rights movement because even a lot of them said, this is just way too much. This yeah. is so over the line. And that was the reason why there was such a big push for the civil rights movement. I think we're now in an area with the same thing is happening and you can just exchange cell phone videos with TV back in the sixties. Now people who for years have said, y'all are too sensitive. The police aren't doing that to you. You're totally blowing out of proportion are now seeing from cell phone videos. Oh yeah. You know, police officer videos that what we've said all along, we want, we don't all have a meeting once a week. The black community doesn't have a meeting <laughs> once a week. And say, okay, this week we're going to keep pushing oh, the, yeah. agenda, the agenda against police officers. <laughs> we've been saying this for decades. Man. And so I think now people are starting to understand and actually look into it a whole lot deeper. 
and say, man, there might be something here. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. When that George Floyd thing went down and I saw mayors and police chiefs denouncing what Chauvin did. Oh, yeah. I've never seen that. Yeah, they, yeah. You're, they stick you're right. Together, prosecutors, you know, <laughs> uh, city leadership and police officers stick together like crazy. I've Man. never seen them denounce one of their own. It, I mean, I think when that video happened, it put them in such a tough position because now it's like, we got video. We're yep. not going on word of mouth. Yep. We're not going on any of that. We have video. So what do you think? Is this wrong or is this right? Two simple questions. Yeah. And, and your average person can go, yeah, man, that nine minutes, that was excessive. Like, yeah, of course it was. Yeah. <laughs> like like if, if he'd have done that for 30 seconds, then you can debate it. But nine yep. minutes. Yeah. yeah. That's that again becomes cruel and inhumane, which is a lot like what they were seeing during the civil rights movement. Yep. Hey, I mean, you, you, you're keeping my optimism up. Uh, because Man, I, I mean, but I will say I now the only, the only uh, obstacle is we just got to keep the momentum going. Yeah. And, but I do think, you're also starting to see movements like voter suppression, things like that, where that you can try that and it's worked in some senses. But I think people are smart enough now where oh, yeah. you're just raising a new generation that's oh, going to yeah. fight at you. If you're trying to do stuff like that, they're coming for you. Oh, yeah, they're all over it now. Because, uh, I mean, I didn't know what was happening. But as soon as I start hearing, you know, ripplings about it and watching the news and some things and, and reading articles about it. I mean, they were on it. So now, like you said, a new generation of people, like how we, how we, how I talked about earlier about like just our, 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 our people, our black people just being, you know, very nice and just keeping it moving. Now these young people are like, no, yeah, <laughs> we're not putting up with that shit no more. Yeah, exactly. Just stop now. And they have like, it was so good to see how, you know, they could use TikTok. They could use, yep. they were using social media to outmaneuver people. Oh yeah. yeah. Man, yeah, they, yeah, like when, especially when the protests were strong last year, man, they were, they were doing that beautifully. Man, yeah, it's. Yeah, like, like Chappelle <laughs> says, man, I'm, I'm excited to, you know, have them in the driver's seat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, because they're not going to let up. That's one thing, man. It's so many different platforms. If they shut one down. Exactly. They gotta, yeah. Hey, yeah, they got that unlocked. Over oh, yeah. The older generations. And so they use it to, you know, outmaneuver them, which is really cool. Yeah, it is. <laughs> because it pisses them off and they can't do anything about it. <laughs> they don't know. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know how to respond to it. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, hey, Kevin, man, I definitely appreciate you being on here, man, um, uh, and listening to your story. Um, that's definitely motivation for me and, and for listeners just to know, like, hey, whatever you go through, um, it's always a silver lining uh, for most people. Some people, you know, some people can't fight through that adversity. Um, but, uh, I, I pray that the majority can and whether they get their closure or if they get their answers that they just continue to push through, man, and just know that they're, they were brought here for a reason. I remember my grandma used to tell me all the time, like, you know, you're here for a reason. Like, don't waste your time. Like do something like helping people, helping yourself, your family, like whatever it may be, man, but just, just be a good person. Exactly. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous. Just go out and be a good person. Um, whatever you went through, it wasn't your fault. So don't take it out on other people. Just go out and be a good person and just live your life, man. Um, so that's that's pretty much that's, a, that's, that's what I, I got from you. Just listening to you talk It's like you went through all this and just growing up where you grew up and things you face and all the adversities. And now you're going out and speaking. It's just like you can do it, man. Like. <laughs> Yeah, don't know your mom or dad, you can do it. it one of the messages I got to do a better job of telling the students is, man, especially when you're in school, man, you just think, I just want to be like everybody else. I just want to fit in. I just want to fit in. And because we all go through different things, we're all different. Mm -hmm. And what we don't realize is, it really, after you get away from high school, get to college and get into the workforce, or just get into the workforce, mm -hmm. 
what makes you stand out is because you're different. And so that was one of the messages I understood was, yeah, man, I grew up in this crazy lifestyle, you know, totally different. But there was a reason for that, because it gives me strength to go speak to different audiences, you know, and talk to the, you know, and touch. You know, I've been able to touch white people in a way that your average black person couldn't only be simply because I was raised with white people. Yeah. For some reason, that it just translates better with some people. And so, yeah, back in the day, people would try to hold that against me and be like, man, you ain't, you know, you ain't, you ain't nothing because you're (laughs) living with white people. But that gave me the strength to go in and be successful. Call that a competitive advantage. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah, man. I, um, my, it's a funny story. I got to tell this before we, we get off. Um, so my wife just being in college, you know, she had, uh, I think it was her birthday and I'm not going to say the person's name, but her friend had like invited her over to her house and it was a white family and she didn't know what to expect because, you know, her mom is white, but her, her mom is really like a, a black woman yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, and her, and her dad is black. So she's, she's used to, you know, just black culture and being around black people, just being around her, her dad's family. So mm-hmm. when she was out in college, you know, she was with, uh, she went over to this girl's house and it was her birthday it was my, my wife, Sarah's birthday, but they were treating her for her birthday so she gets there and she's like man i'm wondering like what are we gonna eat yeah and like they just put up a, a full plate of like grilled cheese sandwiches <laughs> and like in tomato soup and she's like what the hell is this is it <laughs> and she's like man this would never happen for a birthday at a black house i was yeah, like oh yeah. no yeah <laughs> that's so funny like that is so funny <laughs> so what did you miss what did you miss growing up living with a white family. And I remember in high school, it was a similar experience. It was the opposite, though, where my black friends had invited me over to eat, a good friend of mine, Kurt. And uh, I had been over to Kurt's house several times before, and this is so old school. Kurt had a, the living room. We could never go in Kurt's living room. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, um, no. <laughs> and it had the, uh, the plastic cover over oh, the, yeah, over the furniture. Yeah. And the linoleum <laughs> on the floor to cover up the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like a museum and so he invites me to come over and uh yeah i walk and we one we got to eat in the living room there's big table set up six <laughs> table full of food oh yeah and i remember turning to kurt going who else is coming <laughs> so man yeah i feel that yeah we'll never go hungry at a black oh man <laughs> yeah man that's 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 the stuff like just growing up in different households and and different people and different cultures man if people could just come together and just have conversations like you'll find it you might have things not in common but it's just like man that's crazy i wish i could have experienced that but hate and other things and just blind you from being able to experience a lot of it which is unfortunate yeah it is and it's interesting you said that because i remember sorry i'm having trouble hearing you sorry um, it's all good. <laughs> I uh, when I was in college, um, I was excited about talking about those differences between mm-hmm. the races, but I was a bunch. I was around a bunch of white kids that weren't comfortable talking about race. Yeah, and so yeah, I agree with you. I thought they could be great conversation. They could be funny, entertaining. Like we could all learn from each other. And I yep. was so excited to do that. And we just get shut down because they just Man. were not comfortable talking about that stuff. Yeah. That's unfortunate, man. But it is what it is. Yeah. We know. <laughs> but Kev, man, I definitely appreciate you hopping on the call with me, man. Uh definitely enjoyed the conversation. And like I said before, uh, definitely an inspiration to to those who have been through adoptions and know how you feel. Um, and have probably maybe took the same course of trying to find their, their biological parents and had success or uh been unsuccessful trying to do it. But just know Kev is right here, man. He's 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 he's, he's proof that you can get past it and, and live a good life, man, and, and still just be a good person. Uh no matter you know who you come from or not. Uh so Kev definitely definitely appreciate you hopping on with me, man. It's right. Friday. Enjoy your weekend, man. And right. would love to hop on a call with you again sometime soon. I, I know that you're from Ohio. I'm from Canyon, so we're both some some Ohioans. Yeah, exactly. I have to ask, I have to ask this though. I know you're from Detroit, so are you a Detroit Lions fan? Yeah. Oh yeah. Die okay. Hard. 
Nehemiah's fan and then U of M fan too. So Okay, yeah. So I'm a it's weird. People always give me crap about this. I'm all Browns, Cavs, Indians, but my college team is actually Michigan. Yeah, really? Man, well, my stepdad oh. played at Michigan and I had two my two of my uncles play at uh Michigan State. So oh, really? I've kind yeah. of been Michigan college sports guys, but yeah, Michigan, yeah. I'm I'm go blue all day, man. Uh, my yeah. brothers is Ohio State guy, so I hear it from them all the time when we getting beat every year. But yeah, I know that's impressive. <laughs> I don't even get into those conversations. <laughs> you can't say now. Okay, you can't, man. <laughs> well, Kev, definitely appreciate you, man. Uh, have a good weekend, man. Thanks for right, chatting man. with me. All right, thanks, Jason. Take care. Yes, sir. You too. All right, see you. Yo, hold up. This episode is over, but don't forget, go hit that like and subscribe button for me. Thanks for listening.